May we humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day with joy in our hearts to be able to honor you on the day you have commanded, a day that's been kept for centuries, for millennia, down through time that your people would be recognized and they would be blessed by it. We know this is the this is the one day that you have blessed. We pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you will be with us this Sabbath day, that your words that we speak here would be from the very word of your Bible and that many would come to understand you in ways maybe they never have before. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll bless those also who are seeking you as well as those who have a special need, that you would be their Yahweh, your Father, that you would help them through their trials or whatever issues they might have. So we thank you, Almighty Yahweh, and we thank you for the brethren here. For all those who are seeking and searching from afar, may we be a help to them. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. Well, greetings, brethren. In case you have not heard, Brother James Evans got back to Ireland, okay, earlier this week. He wants to thank all the brethren who sacrificed to make him feel welcome here make him feel like a real part of the body of Messiah. You know, it's not often that we get a European who's willing to fly all the way to central Missouri to get baptized, but uh, especially one so dedicated to the truth as, as he is. So, so James, if you're listening, the blessings go both ways, and that's no blarney. You know, Ireland was on my mind this past week, as well as the patron Saint Patrick, who's day this culture will honor next month. And I got to wondering, why do we, why do we care about this guy? Uh, what, what's it for? You know, shamrocks and, and uh, all of the stuff, uh, leprechauns that brings to mind. What, what is it for? And I wondered how many realize who this man really was and especially what he believed and taught. He's called a saint, and tradition says he was a Catholic priest, a bishop, out to convert Ireland to Catholicism. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, what he was trying to do is convert pagan Ireland, not to Roman Catholicism, but in fact to more like the truth we believe. And that's one aspect of today's message. There's another as well. You know, typically when we approach the scriptures, we usually hit it head on. We talk about what Yahshua taught. We talk about what the apostles taught and practiced, what Yahshua practiced. And then we go, uh, then we stop basically from there and, you know, drop it in everybody's lap and say, go with it, because that's the truth. But it's also at times good to take the next step. The next step. What do I mean? Well, historically, the assemblies that they founded, especially Peter, Paul, and James, others, uh, adhered to Scripture centuries after they were gone. But what was their beliefs? Not everyone in their early years went willingly and whole hog into the Roman Catholic Church that dominated Christianity. There were holdouts, small congregations 
who still held to the truth taught by the apostles and Yahshua himself down through the centuries. Hence, we have the Catholic Inquisitions, which word means inquiry. They were trying to root out the heretics and get them to change from their beliefs to the Roman Catholic beliefs. They wanted non-Catholics like us to deny their faith, and so they did horrible things in torture to these people. So the question that is hardly ever asked is and answered, where did these holdouts to truth go during this time? How could they escape? Well, they didn't escape a lot of the inquisitions, but many did. And many of them, from what we can extrapolate from history, is that they kept the Sabbath, they kept the feast days, they kept the Passover, clean foods. And they didn't just give up. They went on and on and perpetuated the truth down through the centuries. Did these teachings that originate with the apostles and Paul come just out of the Old Testament? That's how they learned it? Or was there a standard passed on, a baton passed on of truth to all the next generations? In a book called World Healers, author Gordon, on page 78, writes, the Christianity which first reached France and England, that is, Gaul and Britain, he says, was of the school of the Apostle John, who ruled the churches in Asia Minor. Well, that's an interesting observation. A large number of this Celtic community, colonists from Asia Minor, who escaped, migrated to Ireland, and laid the foundation of the pre-Patrick church. The historical Patrick himself is also a fact hidden in plain sight. All you got to do is do a little research, and you'll find out what this guy was really all about. And these two topics, the church, end quote, in Ireland and his ministry dovetail, which we're going to show later on. One of the most esteemed authorities of record is, you've probably seen it downstairs, big, what is it, uh, 15, 12, 12 volume set, McClintock and Strong Cyclopedia, Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. Now this tome digs deeper into historical and Bible subjects than you may ever want to go. But they have a lot of truth to teach on such things as this. You can find it online. Go to biblicalcyclopedia.com. You can find it right there. Or you can spend $10,000 and get the, the volumes that we did. On page 775 of volume 7, we read that medieval biographers made up the popular legend, legends about Patrick. Take a look. They wrote of his study, his studying, was St. Germain, of his attending a monastery near the Mediterranean, and finally of his going to Rome and receiving ordination from the Pope. All these are mere inventions and were not put forth till more than 500 years after St. Patrick's death. And all of them are presented without a shadow of proof. They are not worthy of the time or the space 
to disprove them, McClintock and Strong says. They continue. The Roman Catholics have proudly and exclusively claimed St. Patrick, and most Protestants have ignorantly or indifferently allowed their claim. But he was no Romanist. His life and evangelical church of the 5th century ought to be better known, and I agree with that. It ought to be better known. Information on Patrick is sketchy, to say the least. But we can get a lot of the facts from history and also from Patrick himself. Quoting again, all that is really known of St. Patrick during this interval is from himself. Sometime during this interval, St. Patrick had a dream. This dream and the several accompanying circumstances led him to believe that it was a call to Ireland. He prepared me that day for what I should be, he says, which before had been far from me to wit that I should have a care and anxiety for the salvation of others. So he says, I'm not worried about myself. I just have this desire to get out there and show others the salvation of the Bible. After this, I did not think of myself, he writes. He wrote, G.O.D. directing me, I consented to no one, nor yielded to them, nor what was grateful to myself. G.O.D. had overcome me and restored all things. So I went to Ireland, to pagans, to preach the gospel. He relied on a supernatural calling, he says, without bishops, without pope or council behind him. He went on his own. His purpose was to convert a pagan nation, and he did it. Not only is there no evidence of a connection between Patrick and the Roman church, but also no connection between Ireland and Rome at that time, and not for centuries later. McClintock and Strong continues, there is no ample evidence that the early Irish church was not in repute, meaning not in any standing, among the Roman Catholic clergy of the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, nor indeed fully until the 12th centuries. Hundreds and hundreds of years later did these things come about. In his epistle to uh, Caroticus, whoever that was, Patrick simply announces himself as bishop. I, Patrick, an unlearned man, to wit, a bishop constituted in Ireland, what I am, I have received from G.O.D., he says. On his own authority, he superintended the Irish church for 34 years. What about the S.T. in front of his name? Why am I saying he's not a S.T., a saint? McClintock and Strong says, he seems never to have been sainted till all Ireland was sainted or canonized. Now, we know that Roman Catholic Church typically saints people after they're dead. In fact, the Pope did, uh, oh, um, what's her name? Yeah, Teresa. Mother Teresa, just not too long ago, after she died. In contrast, the Bible calls living people saints, not dead people. Here are a few examples. You can get it in your Bible and look it up. Daniel 7.21. It's a prophecy. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Obviously, they're living people. Acts 9.13. Then Ananias answered, Master, I have heard by many of 
this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Paul's letters to all the scattered assemblies addresses the saints there. In Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Yahshua the Messiah by the will of Yahweh, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Messiah Yahshua. You know what? Patrick wasn't even Irish. He was the son of a Roman magistrate in southern Scotland. And by the way, that's what James says he came from, actually, Scotland originally. And was carried off to Ireland by pirates about the year 376. Here he was made a slave, but after six years of servitude, he escaped. Ten years later, he returned to Ireland as a missionary of the Celtic church. Here's a statement with big implications. McClintock and Strong again says the anniversary of his death has ever been held as a festive day by the Irish. The early Irish, like the Asiatic Christians celebrated the dying day of their saints rather than, as with us, the day of their birth. And isn't that way Yahweh handles these things in Scripture? It's the death. It's the Passover, remember, not his birth. Asiatic Christians means the New Testament believers in Israel and throughout the Middle East. In relation to Rome, the farther east you go, the more true they become to Scripture. Ever notice that? The farther east you get from Rome toward the Middle East, the closer they get to an Old Testament-based faith. And that's where this church in Ireland, apparently, from what history tells us, came from. Teachings from an Eastern or Asiatic Christianity. So, even back in the Byzantine period, you find, uh, beginning with Constantine, that the truer faith was east and not west toward Rome. Well, it's interesting to keep on digging because the more you dig, uh, you find out some things too that you never knew. We come to a really fascinating part. What did Patrick believe? And obviously teach. Can we trust the legends about him? Well, as with most legends, facts are typically changed and embellished through time till they have no no foundation in truth in many ways. Take early American legends like Washington throwing a silver dollar across the Potomac River when silver dollars didn't even exist back then. And he would never throw one away if he had one. And besides, Patromic was about that wide. He's going to try to throw something across that wide? I don't think so. And besides, back then the dollar didn't go as far as it used to. (laughs) Another legend from a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow says, Paul Revere rode toward Concord shouting, The British are coming, the British are coming. To all he encountered along the way. That's a silly fantasy because this was before the Declaration of Independence. This was before we became American. So all those people considered themselves British that he's yelling at. What? It's ridiculous. But Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem and everybody believes it. Uh, and it was a, it was a 
covert operation because there were British regulars hiding all over the place. He wouldn't have got 100 feet if you started to yell out like that. They would have nailed him. And they did eventually. They captured him and questioned him. See, there were three riders that night. Three riders. He had two other friends. One of them fell off his horse and got lost. The only guy that made it was a, was a physician named Prescott. And he completed the mission, not Paul Revere. But, you know, that's the tradition. And we believe it. Continue on. Well, back to our man Patrick. Understand that Celtic, in the context of Christianity in Ireland, does not mean the Celtic religion, like of the Druids. That's not what we're talking about. These Irish were Bible believers outside of the authority of the Roman church. See, he didn't start this Bible movement in Ireland, but he continued on with it. It was already existing in parts of the country. So the claims that Patrick was a Roman Catholic are just pure fantasy. In the establishment of his Irish church, McClintock and Strong says that St. Patrick in no instance ever appealed to any foreign church, that is Rome, or anywhere else, and no pope or bishop. He himself seems never to have said, uh, sainted, I should say been sainted, till he was dead and many, many years later. William Cathcart in the book Ancient British and Irish Churches on page 83 writes, Patrick churches in Ireland, like their brethren in Britain, repudiated the supremacy of the popes. All knowledge of the conversion of Ireland through his ministry was uh, was suppressed by Rome. There is not a written word from any pope rejoicing over his success in Ireland. Oh, Patrick's doing such a great deal for the church. Not a word. Why? Because he wasn't for the church. Bede, the venerable Bede, never speaks of St. Patrick and his celebrated ecclesiastical history. So completely buried was Patrick and his work by popes and other Roman Catholics that in their epistles and larger publications, his name does not once occur in one of them until 634 of our common era. Few years after him, for sure, Tertullian, around 200 CE, had included the Britons among the many nations which believed in Messiah. And he speaks of these places as being inaccessible to the Romans. In other words, they didn't do much up there. Inaccessible to the Romans, but subjugated to Messiah. In other words, they, the church was not funded by or subject to the Roman church. He, Patrick, still quoting, never mentions either Rome or the Pope or hints that he was in any way connected with the ecclesiastical capital of Italy. He recognizes no other authority but that of the word of Yahweh. I'm going to put that in there. He followed the lesson taught in John's evangel when Messiah refused to be made king. Yahshua said, my kingdom is not of this world. Not only the Irish apostle, but his famous successors, a guy named Columba in Scotland and Columbanus on the continent ignored the supremacy of the papal pontiff. They never would have agreed to making the pope a king. This is from the book Truth Triumphant. So our man Patrick preached the Bible. The Bible he understood. 
He appealed to it as a sole authority for founding this Irish church. Addressed it on the Bible, just like the Protestants said, no, we're going to go with the Bible, sola scriptura. And I believe part of his efforts played into the Reformation. See, oh, Martin Luther and Calvin, they didn't just all of a sudden wake up one day, let's have a Reformation. Let's clean up the Catholic Church. No, this stuff had been going on forever. There was opposition to the Roman Church for a long time, ever since well, the dawn of the Church. Many people recognize that the, that the Bible doesn't agree. He didn't cite any creed. He didn't, made no reference to any other worldly authority, nothing. In his confession, he makes a brief statement about his beliefs, but he does not refer to any church council, creed, or authority. He says, nope, I'm going to preach the word. The training centers he founded, which later grew into colleges and larger universities, were all Bible schools, kind of like ours in this country. Do you know Yale and Harvard and Princeton, all these? They were started as religious schools, and they wanted to teach Hebrew. In fact, uh, Hebrew was one of the, uh, I think it was a, a valedictorian or something, gave his message in Hebrew in one of these schools. I've forgotten which one. They were religious schools. They were started by the churches. Boy, what a difference a day makes, huh? <laughs> Go there now and try to talk religion. But anyway, uh, you know, the Catholics tried. Uh, Pope Gregory had sent delegates to the Christian Celts, quote, acknowledge the authority of the Bishop of Rome. That was his first words. Hey, guys, you're under me. Oh, yeah? They meekly replied, the only submission we can render him is that which we owe to every Christian. This is from the History of the Reformation, book uh, 17, chapter 2. But as for further obedience, we know of none other that he whom you term the Pope or Bishop of Bishops can claim or demand. Early uh, British history by G.H. Wally, page 17. Notice some of the differences between Patrick's Irish church and Rome. The Celts permitted their priests to marry. The Romans, of course, forbade it. The Celts used true baptism, immersion, not sprinkling, the Celts uh, held their own councils and enacted their own laws independent of Rome. The Celts used a Latin Bible and kept Saturday as a day of rest. That was kind of surprising. This according to the book, The Rise of Medieval Church, and the reference is on page 236 and, and forward. Another authority writes, it seems to have been customary in the Celtic churches of early times in Ireland, as well as Scotland, to keep Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, as a day of rest from labor. Well, if it came from these, the Eastern church, as they call it, it would only be probably Sabbath that they kept. The Jewish Sabbath as a day of rest from labor, they obeyed the fourth commandment literally upon the seventh day of the week. This is James uh, Moffat. The Church in Scotland, page 140. Another authority says, In this latter instance, they seem to have followed a custom of which we find traces in the early monastic church of Ireland, by which they held Saturday to be the Sabbath, on which they rested from all their labors. W.T. Skeen, uh, Adam, 
Adam Nan, Life of St. Columba. Not only did they honor the Sabbath, but notice what else? The churches of Asia Minor uh, celebrated the death of the master on the day corresponding to the 14th month of Nisan. On which day, according to the opinion of the whole ancient church, the crucifixion took place. So obviously they weren't doing mass. According to the Celtic Church in Britain by Leslie Harding, as well as the Truth Triumphant by B.G. Wilkerson, Wilkinson, other doctrines that Patrick, Columba, and the Celtic assemblies held included the observance of the other feasts of Leviticus 23. That's fascinating. I'd, I'd like to see more proof on that. The belief in the mortality of man and the hope of the resurrection versus immortality of the soul and going to heaven, hell, or purgatory. They didn't believe that. The distinction between clean and unclean animals. Improvised prayer from the heart rather than simply a repetition from the lips. And discounting of saints, Mary, and angel worship. But, alas, in our story, the popes finally succeeded in obtaining the submission of the Irish church to the Church of Rome about the middle of the 12th century, which until then is believed to have been without uh, what they call auricular oral confession, as the church does now, you know, the priests, sacrifice of the mass, and indulgences. Another authority says that Christianity, which first reached France and Britain, was of the school of the Apostle John, who ruled the churches in Asia Minor. Colonists from Asia Minor laid the foundation of the pre-Patrick church, we mentioned that, that brought with them the doctrine which they received of John, Paul, Philip, and the other apostles of the Master, which included not only the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath, but also the commemoration of his death upon the 14th of Abib, Passover. James Kenny, in the sources for the early history of Ireland, writes, the churches of the Roman province of Asia followed the older custom, keeping the posh on the 14th of Nisan, whatever the day of the week. So, Another authority there. They ignorantly refused to observe our Easter, Pasha, on which Messiah was sacrificed, arguing that it should be observed with the Hebrew Passover on the 14th of the month. This is from the Historia Ecclesiastica by Bede, where Bede quotes Pope John's words concerning the Celtic brethren. Well, the Pope knew it. He didn't like it, but he knew it. You know, we could also go on about the others who went into seclusion, like during the Inquisitions, who denounced Catholic teachings and everything that uh, was against the Scripture. And I believe they were, again, part of the forerunners of the Reformation. C.H. Strong, in his A Brief Sketch of a Group Called the Waldenses, says... They despised all ecclesiastical custom which are not read in the gospel, such as Candlemas, Palm Sunday, the reconcilement of penitence, the adoration of the cross on Good Friday, the Feast of Easter, and the festivals of Christmas and the saints. So they went a lot further than old Luther did. He just 
try to clean up a few of the nasty practices that were going on. Besides the Jews, there were enclaves of others who were true to the Sabbath and feasts throughout history. Uh, you can do your own study on that. There's a bunch, a bunch of them. But you see, the foundation was laid in the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew it. Yahshua based his teachings and practices on that foundation. Follow what he taught and do what he did. It's the doing part that's so hard for people to, to, today to do, the doing part. They can twist his words, but how do you twist his actions when he keeps the feast, when he keeps the Sabbath? How do you twist that up? Word twisting is how the church interprets Matthew 16, 18. And I say unto you that you are Peter, Joshua says, and upon this rock I will build my assembly, and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. What rock? What rock is he talking about? Peter? The first pope? Look at the two verses before. Verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, You are Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living Elohim. His rock that Yahshua is discussing is his profession about Yahshua as the rock, the son of Yahweh. Yahshua said the true assembly would never die out. Now Peter, contrary to what the Romans believe, was not the first pope. That's another legend. The office of pope stemmed from the office of bishop of Rome. He's the bishop of Rome got boosted up into a guy called the Pope. He, he, he ruled over everything. And really all it was was a, a reflection of the Roman government, of a hierarchy, which you don't find in Scripture, a big hierarchy of one man at the top. You don't find that in Scripture. But this office, and there were lots of bishops. There was a bishop uh, uh, you know, of uh, Alexandria and, and some of the major, like five of them. But the one who got the acclaim was the one in Rome because he was the most active, I guess, I don't know, but uh, there was no bishop of Rome until 50 years after Peter died. Now, how do you fit that into Peter being the first pope? There's a lot of things that don't match here. He was no Roman bishop. He was a Jew, for crying out loud. Where did, since Peter, where did any successive popes go? For 300 years. Silence. There's nothing about him. I mean, there's not like Peter says, okay, here, I pass, you know, you are now knighted a pope or whatever. And not until Constantine was the bishop of Rome given a territory like the bishop of Alexandria. Constantine, that's 300 and some years into the common era. So that doesn't fit either. No Roman bishop claimed universal authority for himself until the mid-third century with Constantine. No bishop came up and said, I am, I am the one and I have all authority. Peter was never ordained a pope by anybody. You know, a pope is supposed to be basically infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. That means from the throne or, or whatever, whatever he was sitting on. Then when he speaks like that, he's... Infallible. Well, we know Peter wasn't infallible. At one point, Yasha says, get behind me, Satan. Satan was influencing his heart at a point, and Yasha had to correct him. Peter made some mistakes. He said he would not deny Yasha, and he denied him three times. So anyway, 
uh, the whole thing is just uh, a legend, if you want to call it that. And amazing how legends develop a life of their own over time. It's just amazing. Eventually accepted as fact. You know, many false teachings are just overgrown legends. Many false teachings out in the churchianity today are just overgrown legends given sanction by the church. So, may we think on these things. May we consider that uh, our faith and practice has to come from Scripture not from any traditions, not from any church council, not from man-made anything except what Yahshua taught. And what he taught was the scriptures, the Old Testament, because that's all he had. So I hope this has been enlightening, and may Yahweh bless you.